Welcome to the Alcohol Freedom Podcast, where we're bringing you a modern and judgment-free conversation about how we relate to our drinking habits. I'm Michelle Kaffler, and you've got episode 37. Hello, friends. Thanks for being here. I'm not going to talk about the weather today for once, but I am going to apologize for all of the banging that's happening in the background. We're having some renovations done. And so there are contractors in my house and it's just going to happen. So again, bear with me. I'm sorry about that. Today, I'm going to be talking with my friend Heather and Heather and I have known each other for over 20 years. We went to college together. We met when we were 18 and we've just kind of remained Facebook friend zone for the last little while, but uh, she reached out to me recently and after I started putting my work out into the world and was telling me that she had had a similar experience. And now she was in this place where two years later, she had really figured out her relationship with her drinking from a place that felt pretty tumultuous and not so great for her. And we had this great conversation. She told me all about what she'd been through. And I thought it was really interesting because she's a person who quit drinking for about four months and then decided to try adding it back in to see how it goes and ended up with a completely different relationship with alcohol. And I think it's really important to share stories like this because we only have examples, mostly, of people who stop drinking and then just stay sober for the rest of their life. And I think it's important to add this type of situation into the equation where we're talking about people who maybe quit for a little while and then they decided it was perfectly okay to add it back in at, in a very intentional way. And Heather's story is a very good example of how this can be successful. So I wanted to have her come on and talk about that. Just to give you a bit of an idea of Heather and who she is, I'll just read her professional bio, which is Heather Sinfield is currently completing her Bachelor of Social Work in June 2022 and will become a registered social worker in Alberta and Saskatchewan. She primarily works in the field of sexual violence and is beginning the process of branching into the private practice world. She has experience, knowledge, and passion for embodiment practices, healing from trauma, yoga, relationships, connection, and understanding of the body. Part of her healing journey included understanding the role alcohol played in her life and choosing how to move forward with the understanding in a healthy and impactful way. She's paired this journey with her husband, a sober life coach, friends, family, and her three kids, which she will talk about more in the episode. So without further ado, let's play my episode with my friend Heather. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to have this conversation because I'm Loving the idea of sharing stories of people who have done figuring out their relationship with drinking in a different way than how we classically think of dealing with the drinking problem. And so usually what that looks like for people is that they have to quit completely and become an alcoholic and have this identity for the rest of their lives. But I love this idea that, hey, maybe we can do it in a different way, which is why I'm really excited to talk to you about it. So before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe some of your story with drinking? Sure. Um, well, my name is Heather. I live in a very small rural community on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan with my husband, who's a fourth generation grain farmer. And we have three children, a 10, seven and five. Um, those are probably my biggest roles. And then I do work at a local sexual assault center as a counselor and a director there. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. In terms of 
kind of why I'm here and chatting with you. I think back to the beginning of COVID and just this recognition that drinking had become more prominent in in my life and more of a crutch than I was really wanting it to be or needing it to be. And so uh, after a bit of a, uh, not a bit, it was a big panic attack as a result of a pretty brutal hangover. Um, it was this opportunity to kind of figure things out and really look at my relationship with drinking and what that meant and what I wanted it to look like for the future, instead of just kind of maintaining the status quo of what's expected of a mid 30 year old mom, right? Um, you know, the, the social stigmas and the media portrayal of it all. And so I spent uh, four months um, totally sober and my husband was along for the ride, which was just amazing. Um, I think that was a, a crucial piece to my my own healing through it all. Um, and I worked with a sober coach to just kind of guide me through that exploration and, and understanding that relationship. Um, and so it taught me, it taught me a lot. It, it changed my whole outlook on when I choose to drink, why I would choose to drink if I even want to, to do that at a particular event or, or whatnot, and just truly made me understand myself a lot more. So I think that's in a nutshell, kind of why I'm here. And who I am. I love that. So, first question Do you have a particular way that you identify when it comes to your drinking? I know that labels aren't necessarily the be all end all, but I think people are sometimes curious to know what your identity is when it comes to drinking. Yeah, I love that question. I have been gravitating towards sober curious. So, it's not, I would never say I'm sober. I, I don't believe I'm an alcoholic. Um, but I do believe that I am sober curious, which means in, in my mind and, and with the things that I have read too, it's more so I just have a different understanding of what it means for me to have a relationship with alcohol or to drink on different occasions or to not to drink. Um, and I, I like the idea of being sober, but not as a, a total opposite to alcoholic. Does that make sense? Like it's, Sometimes it has to go this hand in hand. If I'm sober, it means I don't drink. It means I'm an alcoholic. If I'm an alcoholic, it means I can never be sober. And that's not what it's, um, I'm not trying to look at it as a binary, I guess. I love that. And I think it's such an important consideration that, hey, there are clinical definitions of different stages of alcohol use and misuse. And we can identify as those if it's helpful to us. But if it's not serving us, then it's totally okay to just make up what we want to be our own definition for the whole thing. And I love that you've kind of done that. And a lot of people are doing that now. And I think that's great. I think so too. And I just, you know, if I reflect back to two years ago, when this happened, I remember saying to my husband, like, but I'm not an alcoholic. Like I had this huge wall up of, of, that word or that concept or that way of, of being. And I think there is a lot of social stigma about that terminology as well. That makes it really challenging for people to come out and say, Hey, I'm having a problem with my drinking and I don't know what to do about it because there's shame. Well, then everyone's going to call me an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic. So it, it kind of becomes this cyclical sort of pitfall of trying to figure out who we are and what we want to do with it. Um, but I think it's neat that we can kind of write our own definitions and our own way of being that fits best for us. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to acknowledge that having that label of alcoholic is a really, really important part of some people's journeys. And if that's working for somebody, I wholeheartedly encourage it. And I know that a lot of people's lives have been saved because of that. But on the same token, I know for me, I spent 10 years longer drinking heavily than I needed to because I was so terrified of this idea of if I admit that I have a drinking problem, I'm automatically going to have to become an alcoholic and renounce my power and have a disease and basically struggle with this for the rest of my life, according to what that clinical definition is. And I think that kept me thinking, well, it needs to get really bad before I do that. And so I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting to see how bad it could get before I decided to do something. Yeah. And I think that happens to a lot of people. So take me back to two years ago, you had this episode where you had a heavy night of drinking and then you had a panic attack with your hangover the next day. Mm -hmm. And what had things looked like leading up to that moment? What was life like? Was it just kind of one episode of heavy drinking or had you gotten into a habit of heavy drinking? Tell me a little bit more about that and the reasons why you were drinking. So I think with the panic attack specifically, I can you know recall times before where that had happened, but I hadn't really tied the two together. Um, and I hadn't really, you know, named it as such. Right. And then, you know, once my husband and I were chatting about it and we could look back on, on different times where similar sorts of feelings and and symptoms had occurred, we were like, Oh, this kind of has happened before. Um, so that was really interesting to kind of open my eyes to, and I guess the, the months leading up to, to that particular one where it like really sparked the change drinking had become so normalized in so many different homes because we were all working from home. Um, We were all home or like so many of us were homeschooling and navigating this unknown circumstance of a pandemic that we had no idea when was going to end. Um, So there was a lot on social media, a lot of external influences that were just basically saying, it's okay. You know, you're done work for the day. It's a Monday. Let's have drinks let's watch Tiger King, let's do this, let's eat chips. And it was this kind of snowball effect where we were doing it every night. And I wouldn't say it was necessarily heavy every night, but it was like two or three drinks more than I ne- than I ever would have normally had on a Monday or a Tuesday night. So, um, and then, so my husband farms and typically I wouldn't, um, you know, drink alone. And then what I found was during that month leading up to it, when he was away in farming, I was still doing it all. And so then in my head, I was questioning myself, why, (laughs) why do I need to do this? Um, But then at the same time, it's like, well, you know what? I've worked out today. I did all my work stuff. I've been dealing with the kids. I've been homeschooling. I've been doing all this stuff. I deserve to put my feet up and have a glass of wine. So there was this justification process that was happening and that made it so much easier for my mind to just dismiss the fact of, of the why behind it. I think there is a lot of vulnerability in, in sitting with our feelings and sitting with the struggle of a day in not just reaching for a coping strategy right away. Like sometimes we need to just sit and I was avoiding all of that. 
Yeah, 100%. I totally identify with that. And I think it's also this, like it's, there are so many layers to this. It's not just, oh, I deserve a break and I want to put my feet up. It's also, I'm feeling all of these uncomfortable things. And also this is just what we do and it's a habit. And I don't know if it's okay, but I haven't decided it's not okay. So there's just so many things that kind of go into that equation. And then the habit just builds. And before you know it, it's every night. It's every night. And then, and then where do you start to say something? Like, where do you, like, how do you say, Hey, husband, spouse, partner, person of mine, I've drank every night this week. And I don't know why, because even just verbalizing that out loud to a loved one or, or a close person in our lives to ourselves even is just hard to say it. Um, and that's where I was. I was like in my head, I need to say something, but I could not um, say it out loud until it got to bed. I totally hear that. And I think to kind of add on to that, and I don't know if this was your experience, but this was definitely my experience. Over the years, I had a couple of those moments when I would confide in a partner or a loved one. And because my drinking didn't fit the definition of somebody who has a diagnosable drinking problem, like it wasn't that bad. I wasn't having intervention staged and I wasn't going to work drunk and I wasn't parenting irresponsibly. Like I wasn't doing any of these bad things in my life. And so when I said to my husband, Hey, like, what do you think about my drinking? Do you think I drink too much? He'd be like, no, you're fine. It's totally fine. And it's because he wasn't witness to all of the inner turmoil inside of my head where I was like, I'm beating myself up. There's something wrong with me. I'm a bad human. I'm a bad mother. I'm a bad wife. Cause I can't get a hold of this. And that was all under the surface. It's hard to verbalize it and express something that is felt. And I think that's, that's a big part of it is that, you know, we get into these pitfalls, we, we think all of these things. And then the next morning, we're like, you know what, today's gonna be better. I got this. It's under control. I'm fine. My partner's right. This isn't a big deal. Everyone's doing it too. Like I'm not the only one that's coping with a pandemic with, with drinking or, or whatever the stressor may be. So it's, it almost needs to, and you know, I think I said this the one time we chatted, Michelle, too, that panic attack was terrifying for me. It was ter- terrifying for the friends that supported me through it. Um, but I'm so grateful that it happened because then I'm, I also sit there and wonder if it didn't get that bad, if I didn't get that sick in that moment, what, where would that drinking relationship be now two years later? Um, what would that look like for my children? What would it look like for my marriage uh, and those kinds of things? Because at the time it wasn't impacting any of that. So I thought, but then, it, you know, it can circle out and, and keep going. Yeah, 100%. I totally hear that. So I want to talk a little bit about when you made the switch to exploring the idea of living an alcohol-free life. So you worked with a coach, which is great. Um, A coach who was not me, by the way, if if anybody's wondering that, it was somebody else. So tell me a little bit about what was helpful for you when you were kind of exploring that idea of maybe I don't need drinking in my life. What did that look like? So there's a few things that come to mind. Um, The first day that I was kind of figuring this out and, and saying, okay, I need to reach out. Um, I connected with um, a very good friend of mine um, who I knew had experience with this and would support me wholeheartedly. And this friend was the one who connected me with a sober coach and suggested it. 
and just listened without any <laughs> form of judgment or questions of why, who, how are you doing this sort of thing um, or dismissiveness. There was not, nobody dismissed it. It was all just, you know, we're here for you and, and do what you need to. And then the, the second piece to that was my husband. He was away when this first happened. So I actually didn't get to tell him until about 24 hours after I was home and, and, um, crying, <laughs> all the, the thing, the emotional turmoil that was happening, um, was he's like, okay, what do you need? I'll do it with you. Like, again, just this, you know, I'm not going to dismiss this. He was totally up for the challenge. Um, and he actually stayed sober with me for those four months as well and did a lot of conversations and self-reflection too. So having that person, you know, when you're exploring sobriety or understanding your relationship with alcohol, who's kind of, kind of do it with you. So if you do go to a party, you're out for supper, you've got your person that was in the beginning. Uh, I don't think I could have done it without him. Um, and then the, the third thing with the sober coach is I had access to her uh, for four months, 24 seven. So I could text her, I could call her. Um, we had like zoom sessions together so I could see her face and build this beautiful relationship with her. Um, and it was just a, a safe person to talk about it. Who also had experience with being a woman, being a mother, um, and figuring out drinking in her thirties. Like we had a lot of similarities and I found that very helpful the the she recovers site, they have a ton of sober coaches and you can read the, their bios. And that's what I loved is I was able to pick someone where I was like, I resonate really strongly with you and feel like we could have beautiful conversations. And it she just provided me the space to learn and figure it out in a way that felt safe and authentic. And she never pushed me. She never said, you have to not drink ever again. And that was huge. That was huge for me. Okay. Amazing. And so you spent four months not having any drinks at all. And then tell me about the process of adding it back in. Because I think I remember you telling me at one time that you occasionally do have a drink from time to time when you decide it's okay and you like your reasons. So tell me about that process of, okay, I'm going to try adding it back in. What was that like for you? How was that process? For sure. So it started first with talking with my sober coach about the process because she she kind of provided a little bit of a uh, a different thinking pattern on it. Um, she is hundred percent sober and, and will not choose to drink again. Um, where I was, was more curious about what that would feel like. And so there was a piece of me that just almost needed to do it again and see, can I, is this for me? Is this not for me? I almost had to test myself. And I think that was just part of me understanding that relationship a little bit more and really, truly getting it for me, not based off of, like you said, the clinical definition or somebody else's way of, of being. Um, so we spent about the last couple of sessions, which would have been the last month, kind of just understanding and putting some guidelines in place. And then with those guidelines, I took them back to my husband. And so him and I sat and said, you know, okay, so we're going to not have alcohol in the house. Um, was one of our things. There's no need for us to sit and drink at home in any way, shape or form. So that was something that we committed to at the beginning. I committed to deciding before I got to an event, whether I was choosing to drink that evening or not. And I committed to that too. So there were some nights where I said, you know, I'm going to have a glass of wine and that's, that's where it's at this evening. And there were some nights where I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, I also find my relationship with alcohol varies depending on where I am with my menstrual cycle too. So for any 
um, individuals who menstruate each month. Um, that was a huge factor for me in how my body responds to alcohol in it. So I choose not to drink at certain moment, certain times in my cycle as well. Um, and that was a big piece of just understanding my body and, 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 and that sort of thing too. Um, I was also transparent with close friends when we did start going out, whether I was choosing to drink that evening or not, so that they just know where I'm at, um, and were very supportive of, of about that too. I'm trying to reflect back. I should have grabbed my journal before this, but those are kind of like the big ones that we really connected with. Um, and then also, oh, this is a huge one. I would do like a bit of a, uh, I'm a counselor, so I do this, you know, I, have lots of little interventions in my mind, but I would do an emotional check. So where am I today emotionally? Am I in like a comfortable, stable, I'm able to self-soothe space or am I heightened by something? Am I frustrated? Um, am I feeling A, B or C? And if, if, I if I answered kind of in that secondary space where I was overwhelmed or heightened or, or low, um, then that wasn't a day for me to have a drink. So and that's all early stage stuff, um, right off that four months of sobriety. But those were really helpful things for me to unpack. And then, yes, that transparency with my husband before we went out. I love that. And there's so much interesting science um, to support everything that you're saying in terms of habit change and neurophysiology and research. And it's that idea of using your prefrontal cortex to make decisions about what you're going to do, as opposed to using that reactionary lower area of your brain that decides in the moment. And that's more based on emotion rather than logic. And I think that's a huge piece right there is that if you can decide ahead of time that you're going to do something, you can have as many drinks as you want, as long as you're making a decision ahead of time. And that's usually what I find with my clients who take alcohol out. Because with my clients, I'm the same. I always recommend at least a brief period of abstinence because I think it makes it more straightforward. But then they can add it back in at some point if they want to. That idea of making the decision ahead of time is huge as opposed to in the moment when you're feeling the emotion or the overwhelm and it's more of a self-medication thing rather than I'm going to have this drink because I like this reason. I agree with all of that. And I think along with the, the, the pre-decision, you know, deciding before you go somewhere is what was helpful is I was able to verbalize it to people that I was going to be with too and feel safe. And so I know, it, I know not everyone necessarily has people in their corner that, that will support it. And that can be really challenging. Um, so within that, like I would write things down sometimes too, if you're a journaler and that would be my commitment to self. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a verbal commitment to another person. We can do this commitment to ourselves as well. Um, which, which I do feel can be quite helpful. I love that. So on an ongoing basis, I mean, it's obviously a thing where you're practicing and you're developing new habits and you're using your brain in different ways. So that's just naturally part of it. But is there anything that you intentionally do to ensure that your relationship with alcohol stays healthy for you as you go on? Well, I actually, I think talking about it still, you know, it's two years down the road and, and you and I are connecting now and having these conversations and, and being transparent and being vulnerable. So I think those... It, that is a huge piece, just being open to those conversations and, and sharing that story. Um, I read a ton. So any book recommendations or, or things on 
on ways to better understand ourselves as as women or as people or, or however we identify. So a lot of that is very helpful. And I do a lot of personal self-development, um, physical activity, exercise, yoga, all of those things are very near and dear to my heart as well. And I keep going back to Gene, that's my husband, but like him and I do, we still kind of reflect on it. You know, we were out together on, on Saturday night and I had one drink and I had committed to two, but after one, I was like, you know, I feel I'm good like this. I don't need any more. And it was, I felt so strong in the moment of being able to just say that to him, Hey, I'm good. And there, what was really neat. And this was, might've been the first time or one of the early times. And this was just this past weekend where I made a room full of people that I, I don't know everyone super well, but I was so confident with my choice. And it didn't matter to me that, you know, so-and-so was doing this and this group was over here doing jello shots. I was happy with what I had chosen. And so that was a really cool moment. And my husband was, was doing his own thing. And I was very, I was okay with the difference in, in what our choices were, but that we were able to come together and still communicate about it afterwards. And so, yeah, those are some ongoing, ongoing things. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to that security and who we are as individuals. And that goes beyond just whether we choose to drink or not. There's a lot of factors, as you mentioned, into what makes us feel okay with our choices and what makes us not feel okay with our choices. So there's some, some self discovery options, I think that are still within this that go beyond the scope of even what you and I are talking about today. A hundred percent. And I think it just continues to evolve as you go. I mean, there's never, you never know everything about yourself, mostly because you're always changing and you're always developing new perspectives. So there's all, if you're paying attention and you're wanting to pay attention, which I think people who generally find podcasts like this are interested in what they can do to better themselves. So I think that's so interesting. But I want to take it back for one second just to your relationship with Gene. Um, it sounds like you two have been super on the same page with all of this. And that's so good to hear. But I want to talk about this little bit that you said that when the two of you went out, you had you weren't doing the same plan. And I'm assuming that means that he was maybe planning to drink a little more than you. Yeah. How do you navigate those situations where you're doing something that's a little bit different than your significant other. Because I meet a lot of people who, and I'm one of these people where my husband didn't want to quit drinking with me and I didn't ask him to, and he didn't volunteer to, but we kind of navigated this whole thing with him still drinking and me not still drinking. And don't get me wrong. I was very good at putting up boundaries and setting expectations, but do you have any advice for people now that you're kind of in it a little bit, um, how to navigate those situations where your significant other might be making different choices than you? How do you reconcile that in your head, in your mind? I think first and foremost is knowing that you're going in it together regardless. So there's this beautiful analogy of relationships where there's a kind of a misconception that we're in the same boat and we're doing this together. You're actually not, you're in your own boats, but you're choosing to sail together in the same direction, but you have your own resources, you have your own tools, you have your own skill set and decision-making capacities and all of these things, but you, every day you're choosing to navigate and sail together. So I love that concept of like, I have my boat and he has his, but I also kind of want to know a little bit about where his boat's going and he needs to know a little bit about where mine is going so that we can work together and end up in the same space. Right. So I kind of equate it to that is, you know, just this past weekend, again, I knew what he, what his intention was for the evening and he knew what mine was. And so there were no surprises. There was no sort of, 
resentment or pissiness. Oh, he's having six and I'm only having two or whatever it was. Um, it was, I knew where we were both at. And so that's one thing is just, if you have differences of opinions about what it looks like is just being able to still talk about it and say, I respect your opinion, respect mine, and we're going to go forth. And there's, there's nuances within that and, and a lot of, um, opportunities for more within that too, but that would be one response. And the other thing that I've learned over these two years and in reading and in talking with other sober individuals too, is if the sober person is done at whatever drinking event is happening, the partner should support and they leave together. There shouldn't be, I'm going to have two more, just wait. I'm not ready to leave yet. I'm still in party mode. Because I think what I've learned about myself is there are moments where I'm done. I don't want to be in this space anymore. It doesn't feel good or safe for me as an individual. Um, and that supportive factor of me being able to say to him, hey, I think I'm all done. I'm ready to go. He just gets it and we go. There's no sort of peer pressure to stay and try and put myself in this space that doesn't feel okay for me anymore. Yeah, I hear that. And I would also want to maybe take it one step further that if you're at an event with somebody who does want to stay, it is perfectly okay to have your own back and take yourself out of that situation if you need to. That you don't need anybody else to do that with you or for you. You can be your ultimate own support person. And if you need to leave, then you just leave. Yeah. And I think that's that's a beautiful addition. You know, we were starting with a couple's conversation, but at the same time, we are our own autonomous beings that we have choice and capacity and strength and opportunity in front of us that we get to take advantage of with or without someone. So yeah, absolutely. And I love that boat analogy. I'm probably going to use that again. I think that's brilliant. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So before we close out this conversation, um, what I'd like to ask all of my guests is if there's somebody who's maybe a step or two behind you, maybe they're just getting started. Maybe they're not even doing anything. They're just thinking about maybe trying this. What advice would you have for them? Oh my goodness. That is a great question. I think the biggest thing is find someone else who's also done it and start talking. Like just ask questions. When I say find someone else, I don't say your best friend because sometimes that's not the person. Sometimes you need to find someone that's outside of your community, which I really had to do. I work as a counselor in our community. So I wanted to find someone that did not know me in a professional way, um, that did not know me in a social way or a loving way or anything like that. So just finding that person that you can connect with to say, I'm, this is crossing my mind and I'm not sure what to do about it. And it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to ask questions because the only way that we're going to figure any of it out is by simply just kind of being curious about it and saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to just look into it. And that, that can be a little bit intimidating and nobody needs to be like jumping into a big sober journey and, and a big reflection exercise, but just, I'm going to be curious about it. And I think that open-minded concept can be really helpful. Yeah. I love that. Curiosity is everything. And just because you're asking questions doesn't mean you have to quit drinking. It doesn't mean you have to do anything at all. You can just ask yourself questions and reflect and talk about it with somebody else. And I actually think that advice of it not being your best friend or somebody in your immediate circle being super good advice because usually the people who are closest to us, 
they want to reassure us. They want us to be okay. And so unless it's really, really, really bad, they're probably going to say, oh yeah, you're fine. No problem. That's what my husband used to do when I would talk to him. He'd be like, no, I don't, I think you're fine. Cause he wanted me, he wanted to make me feel better. They want to reassure us. So finding somebody who's a little bit more objective, I would say is a really good place to take that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving your time so generously. I think that this is probably a really interesting episode for a lot of people. Again, I love sharing stories with people who are doing it in a bit of an unconventional way. So thank you for that. If anybody wants to find you on social media, where can they go? So they can follow me on Instagram. The page has been a little inactive lately, but only because I took a a fairly solid social media break for a while. Um, So they can follow me at Joyful Living with Heather and that's on Instagram. And I am working on a couple of professional but side projects outside of my nine to five role that will start to appear appear on that page that I'm really excited about. Um, that a lot involves relationships and connection and just sorting through some of that communication and vulnerability spaces that can be challenging to be in. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'll make sure that I link all of that up in the show notes for you. Heather, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. 